Hey everybody, we are back from hiatus, uh, which went from one month to two months, but uh, here we are. And uh, things have kind of changed in the past two months. Not going to lie, I'm a lot more pessimistic than I was maybe when we last recorded our COVID podcast, but I still think most of what we said there still applies today. Do expect a new episode to drop every other Monday, just like it has in the past. This is part one of a part two series on the history and criminality behind swearing. And I should note that especially the first half of this is pretty wonky. At least if you're somebody who is used to like a good history story, we have to talk a little bit about the different types of swearing before we even get into swearing, which if you like to hear curse words, you're going to enjoy that part especially. But otherwise, um, if you're somebody who just wants to hear the history of swearing, skip to around the 14 or 15 minute mark. And of course, if you're somebody who is offended by language, my apologies, this is not the episode for you. Oh, and one last very important update. A lot of you know that I do professional historical work for Historical Society uh, at a museum, as well as professional work at a university. But I used to be a secondary social studies teacher for a few years, and I wanted to give a shout out and congratulations to my former students who have graduated this year. It's been a very tough year for you. You now know why we did a Black Death unit every single year. Um, but congratulations, and I can't wait to see what you guys have in store next. And now you get to hear your former teacher cuss a lot for the next two episodes. All right, let's get on with it. Today's episode is taken from the work Swearing, A Social History of Foul Language, Oaths, and Profanity in English by Jeffrey Hughes. This episode contains many, many words that may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. You know, the past week's events have been very trying for everyone. Coronavirus, protests, economic insecurity. Sometimes, I think all we can really do is just let out a really huge, exasperated, fuck, <laughs> right? We all have that moment where we figure out as a kid there's some words that we aren't supposed to say. And I think fuck is pretty much on everybody's list. I remember vividly being in the bathtub, I think I was around five or six, and I called my mom into the bathroom and I asked, Mom, what's a bitch? And mom and dad were always pretty good at explaining those sorts of things, thankfully. I did not get any soap in my mouth that time. But you quickly learn that there's a list of words that you aren't supposed to say, at least to certain people or at certain times. George Carlin does this really good bit, perfectly, in his 1972 monologue, Seven Words You Can Never Say on Television. It's one of the most famous stand-up routines of all time. That's what I was talking about. What can you say on television? That's another one of those places where we can't use these words all the time. But some of them are all right some of the time. Ass is all right on television. You can say on television things like, well, you've made a perfect ass of yourself tonight. But you can't say, hey, let's go get some ass. <laughs> Problem number one, you can't know what's on someone's list because no one just comes out and gives you a list. 
of the words that you can or can't say. Nobody even tells you when you're a kid what the words are that you're supposed to avoid. You have to say them to find out which ones they are. Shit! <laughs> oh, fuck! <laughs> That's two. Problem number two, it's always somebody else's list. You didn't make that up. Somebody told you that shit. They told you better. You better not say that. So you gotta... And you don't know what's going to be on their list. God, people's lists even change from day to day. Some people on Friday night got a list, you know, not about two or three words. Sunday morning, goddamn, they make 27 words. And problem number three, I think he'd add, is that as society evolves, so do the words we use. And words we used 30 years, 20 years, 10 years ago, they just don't fly today. Like, a few months ago, my neighbors, bless their heart, gifted Katie some makeup and said, I'd wear this, but it doesn't match my skin. I think it's for Negroes. They're 80-something, so like we'll, we'll give them a pass. But if I called the checkout cashier at the local grocery a Negro, I'd be labeled a racist. And rightly so. Hell, it's even getting to the point where I, a 28-year-old, I'm starting to see the evolution of this language in my lifetime. Like, teaching students about slavery, um, we would always read passages with the word nigger in it. And I'd have to stop and explain the history of the word and why we don't use it, but why we also are reading passages with it. And of course, when you are a kid, everything's black and white, so then you want to know, hey, teach, what are the other words I can't use? Where's my list? And of course, then we go over the history of words like negro or colored, but then, talking with other black activists, I've heard mixed signals, you know, is African American now on the list? Or black? People of color seems to be in vogue. But it's just what's so interesting about language. It's a game. You play with individuals, groups, society. Something we've talked about on this podcast, this idea of language as a game by um, philosopher uh, Wittgenstein. Not everybody has the same list and some people's lists change by the day. And in order to figure out everyone's list, you have to play the language game. You have to decipher what a word means. If I gave you the word ball, what does it mean to you? Does it mean ball, like the kind of ball that you throw to people in sports? Or is it like a ball, like a dance? Or did your mind go to the gutter? My point being, one word can mean different things to different people. Words are subjective to the context of who we're talking to. So unfiltered me considers almost nothing off-limits. But the subjectiveness of words means that what's considered vulgar is different for every person, even entire societies. And sometimes, societies make the very utterance of a word criminal. I'm Trevor Rhodes, and this is High Crimes in History. is a cultural commodity, because language is a commodity. Some communities swear less, or not at all. Jeffrey Hughes, the writer who we pulled a lot of our research from, notes that American Indians, Japanese, Malayans, and Polynesian cultures all swear far less as a society than other groups. In fact, he writes this, quote, 
In many cultures, swearing is fascinating in its protean diversity and poetic creativity, while being simultaneously shocking in its ugliness and cruelty. Whereas Proteus merely changed shape, the same form of an oath or a curse yields many meanings. Swearing draws upon such powerful and incongruous resonators as religion, sex, madness, excretion, and nationality, encompassing an extraordinary variety of attitudes, including the violent, the amusing, the shocking, the absurd, the casual, and the impossible." End quote. He also goes farther on, quote, The interesting exception occurs within formulas. In this context, nouns become interchangeable. Thus, the emotive kernel of the formula for exasperation, for Christ's sake, might, in other company, transform to, oh, for pity's sake, for shit's sake, or even for fuck's sake. This series might provoke the obvious but naive question, what does Christ, pity, shit, and fuck have in common? The answer in this context is, of course, nothing whatsoever. They are simply terms of high emotional charge which have accreted over time into the formula to the point that they can now be used interchangeably. End quote. I think this is what's so interesting about language to begin with. The fact that something like, say, the word fuck could be used as a noun, a verb, an adjective, an adverb. Have you ever used it as an article? So the question is, what's the commonality between them? I mean, it's important to understand that swearing is itself a fluid concept. We can swear by something, or swear to something, as in like having an oath to someone, a promise that we're not supposed to break. We could swear that something is factual, like I swear this happened, this event. Or we can swear at a certain somebody or a certain something, like calling somebody a name. Or sometimes... A swear just stands as an adjective or as a way to vent frustration. That's about where all my swearing happens. It can be a violation of the sacred or the profane. It could be highbrow, it could be lowbrow, anything in between. But by and large, swearing is a violation of taboos. Quote, High varieties violate the taboo of invoking the name of like a deity. The word drat originally meant God rot your bones while the low varieties are often violations of sexual taboos, especially those concerning incest, like the word motherfucker, end quote. Now, since these taboos change over time, so too does the language we use. As Hughes points out, quote, societal taboos therefore become revealing indicators of evolving social mores and reflect differing attitudes towards major forces which sustain, alter, or threaten life. They can be diversified or specific, but commonly involve the deity, death, madness, sex, accretion, and strangers, end quote. Now, I know this is already a lot to talk about. You're going, where's the fun? Where's the history? But we're not done yet. We're going to complicate things even more. Because the original taboo of swearing at all was actually in oaths. The literal belief of the mystical or spiritual power of words to bind oneself to an action or an entity in fact, the whole concept of cursing was originally a means of word magic. The word curse in Old English was synonymous with damn, literally to send somebody to hell. In religions in which the name of God or the gods was taboo, such as Brahmanism, Judaism, Islam, cultures literally believed that curses were physical forms. 
Montague mentions in his Anatomy of Swearing, quote, the behavior of certain Arabs who, when cursed, ducked their heads or fell flat on the ground in order to avoid a direct hit by a word, end quote. We're about to explore all of that history, but for the most part, Western society doesn't believe that words have some mystical sway anymore, simply by uttering them. For example, taking the Lord's name in vain today no longer is about abusing the mystical power of the Lord's name, but rather a skepticism of that power. And that's important, because when we talk about the history of swearing, there's really two distinct periods, a period in which most swearing is religious in nature, and one in which most swearing is secular. There's also vulgarity, best synonymous with like a dirtiness to a particular word. The word vulgar originally meant the common, ordinary language used by everyday society, but now we use it to refer to words like shit, piss, cock, those dirty words, oftentimes about excretion or sex. And then there's euphemisms, a method of self-censoring, kind of like how asterisks are often used to omit certain portions of a word in print. We do this all the time. We use words like, or terms like pass on or pass away instead of they died. We want to suggest an unknown or a journey, a continuation, a way of avoiding that simplicity and finality of death. And we often censor ourselves by creating new euphemisms that sound like a swear word phonetically, but are supposed to mean the same thing. For example, in history, we have a lot of euphemisms for different swear words. And I even thought of sprinkling these throughout the next two episodes, but to be honest, it's almost fun to put them all together and see how euphemisms have changed over time. So for example, historically, to use the word God, we've replaced it in different euphemisms with words like golly, jove, bleu, as in like mondu, gosh, egad, gracious, drat, by George, great Scott, good grief, doggone, all of those just for one word to not use the phrase God. Now, and then there's another one, Jesus Christ, which if you noticed right now, there's Christian terminology of God and Jesus Christ, and we're going to get into that in a second. Jesus Christ has oftentimes been euphemized as Jiminy Crickets, G's, Gee Whiz, Jeepers, Crikey, Cripes, Criminy, Jiminy Christmas, or for crying out loud. The word Lord we've substituted with Lottie, damned with darned and derned, hell with Sam Hill and heck, shit with shucks, fuck with frick, f, frig, bloody with ruddy or blooming. And if you're noticing a pattern here of rhyming, it's a huge portion of euphemisms, whether it's disguised or not. Like, have you ever heard the phrases, hell's bells, fuck a duck? shit a brick, stone the crows, poppycock. Some slang we still use and are much worse than we probably realize. Maybe some of those you, you currently use and didn't realize it was a euphemism for something you would never say. Other examples is like saying my word, and but that used to mean my turd. Tickle your fancy used to actually mean tickle your Nancy. All I can imagine is all the times my church leader or grandmother said one of these words or phrases. So, all of this to say, the history of swearing is as vast as the history of language itself. 
And I know that we just went through about 15 minutes of a lot of breaking down of just how we use language in general. But here are the major takeaways. Swearing as a concept is universal, but every society is different. All swearing involves some violation of taboos, but what those taboos are is dependent on the situation, culture, and individuals involved. And, most importantly, words themselves have no more value than what society ascribes to them. And of all those statements, you might find the last one the most controversial, if for whatever reason you believe that words have some sort of objective meaning. But I hope we've learned by this point that words are a lot more fluid. In fact, to invoke George Carlin again, in an interview he did looking back on his famous routine about the seven words you can't say on television, he said this about how we choose about what words are good or bad. Quote, There's no real consistent standard. It's not a science. It's a notion that they have, and it's superstitious. These words have no power. We give them this power by refusing to be free and easy with them. We give them great power over us. They really, in themselves, have no power. It's the thrust of the sentence that makes them either good or bad. End quote. So with all of that context on how we talk about swearing, I want to focus on how swearing has historically been criminalized. To do that, we need to go back in history to how modern swearing in the English language got started, and that is with the oath. There are many types of oaths, but all the Anglo-Saxons took them extremely seriously. They remained as restrained as possible. For example, in the Law of the Kings of Kent, which is about mid-7th century, it read, quote, If anyone in another's house calls a man a perjurer, or shamefully accosts him with insulting words, he is to pay a shilling to him who owns the house, and six shillings to him who he spoke that word, and to pay twelve shillings to the king. End quote. That's the same penalty as for stealing a cup. Not much, but it's still enough to cause those who swear to take pause. And of course, the law of the kings of Kent wasn't the only law. For example, in the laws of Alfred, which is about 900 AD, it read, quote, Do not ever swear by the heathen gods. End quote. So, in Anglo-Saxon culture, by which we were talking about Viking era, to perjure oneself was to slight both God and man. But that's just one form of oath. There's also the challenge. A challenge was literally a formal legal reply, the epitome of swearing against someone. For example, in the Battle of Malden, one Anglo-Saxon warrior, quote, raised his shield, brandished his slender ashen spear, and ground out words. Furious and resolute, he gave the messenger answer, and now in his words, Do you hear, seafarer, what this people say? They intend to present you with spears for tribute, poisonous points, and heirloom swords, tribute which will profit you not in the fight. End quote. Now, it's important. His response stands for the entirety of the army, even though it was made off the cuff. These are both examples of swearing at somebody, but also a sort of legal swearing by something. And then, of course, there's the ancient ritual of flitting, literally to wrangle or scold. Hughes writes, quote, In this brand of flitting, the insults are deliberately provocative, designed, to use another northern word, to egg the opponent into action. 
Although the language is often gross, even grotesque, and astonishingly scatological, there is also a certain element of play. Skill in barbed insult, dexterity in the wounding phrase. It is the verbal equivalent of virtuoso swordplay, end quote. I think a little bit of like pundits on television nowadays, how oftentimes it's not so much about the facts and more about how you use them to wound the other side. And of course, this crosses both ways. In fact, in one Old Norse story, a woman divorces her husband. Her husband's name is Bercy, and she divorces him for engaging in homosexuality. But in parting, she says that he ought to be called Buttocks Bercy. So that's the sort of lowbrow humor we talk about when we're talking about flitting. But if we're thinking about, I guess, modern swearing, most English swearing can be traced back to Christianity. As time moved forward, swearing at something or at someone became more common than swearing by something. Like, for example, taking an oath. Now, this is important because for us, those are two separate concepts, but at the time, they weren't. Hughes points out, quote, This change brings into play a whole variety of new personal reference and swearing, which are entirely secular, and which now we take for granted, such as age, stupidity, low status, meanness, and uncleanness, all conveyed in new emotive uses of words like old, fool, churl, and lousy. End quote. Swearing by Christ's name was especially foul. Dan Michael, a brother in Canterbury, complained that Christians, quote, are worse than the Jews who crucified Christ but did not break any one of his bones. But these meant him smaller than men do swine in a butchery. These people do not even respect Our Lady, but are villainously destructive of her and of the saints to the point that it is a wonder that Christendom suffers it. End quote. Now, what was he complaining about that they were so bad at? That they were worse than the Jews who killed Christ? While using his name in vain. In sermons and Christian writings, a motif of Christ as a child being literally dismembered by false oaths plays out all throughout the medieval time period. In Handling Sin by Robert of Brunn in the early 14th century, Christ the child is described as, quote, All drawn were the guts, of hands, of feet, the flesh off drawn. Mouth, eyes, and nose were all gnawed. Back and sides were all bloody. Thou, she said, has him so damaged, and with thy oaths all to rent, end quote. What had hurt him was literally taking the Lord's name in vain. In other words, words literally wounded. In Gesta Romanorum, circa 1440, the virgin states, quote, Why come ye hither? For to shew the my son, lo, she said, here is my son lying in my lap, with his head all to broke, and his eyes drawn out of his body and laid on breast, his arms broken a two, his legs and his feet also. End quote. And in one homily in 1450, the author puts in the character Christ himself these words, quote, And what particularly grieves me is that you care nothing for my passion which I suffered for you, but I am affronted all day by horrible swearers, who swear by my face, by my eyes, by my arms, by my nails, by my heart, by my blood, and so forth, by my whole body, End quote. Now why did people swear by the Lord so much? One contemporary, John Bromyard, thought that this was something to do with nobility. He said, quote, 
These inventors of new oaths, who inanely glory in such things, count themselves more noble for swearing thus. This is to be seen among those who consider themselves of high breeding or are proud. Just as they invent and delight in everything of the nature of outward apparel, so do they also in the case of vows and oaths. Strange vows and swear words invented by them are already so common that they may be found daily in the mouth of any ribald or rascal you please. End quote. Now with this swearing comes the first of what we can see as hefty fines. Henry I in the 11th century England imposed fines for swearing in the precinct of a royal residence. He said, quote, A duke, 40 shillings. A lord, 20 shillings. A squire, 10 shillings. A yeoman, 3 shillings. And 4 pence, or half a mark. And a page, a whipping. End quote. And I think that's interesting because it does show that the penalties hit harder, well, depending on if you think a whipping is different than 40 shillings, but but they would see it as a duke getting 40 times more fined than the page. In France, it's similar. St. Louis decreed in the 13th century that, quote, swearers should be branded upon the face with a hot iron for a perpetual memorial of their crime, and later on, indeed, and ordained that they should be set in a public place in the high stocks, similar in form and mode of punishment to that inflicted upon cut purses in England. End quote. But of course, society doesn't always just stop cursing because you told them to. To circumvent this, writers employed new insults to stay ahead of law enforcement. In other words, coming up with a whole new insult that doesn't fall into criminality. The pinnacle example of this is Geoffrey Chaucer, for sure, the author of the Canterbury Tales. He uses terms such as foul, lousy, old, shrew, swine, idiot, god's arms, god's bones. And while all of that seems tame today, I mean, no one's going to send a child to a principal's office for calling a kid lousy, they were all completely new insults to the English language, at least as far as historians of language can tell. Hughes points out, quote, It seems ironic that a medieval poet, Chaucer, should in fact have been one of the few major literary artists who could fearlessly use the whole gamut of the vocabulary without evident reprisal. End quote. But of course, since they're all new insults, they didn't get fined. And as the Reformation redefined religious authority in Europe, so too did it redefine swearing. Words now incorporated religious abuse towards one another. Put-downs against other religion became frequently used. Other religions were called heathens, pagans, and infidels. Muslims were called mahound, meaning devil or monster or false god. They also took upon a xenophobic tent. For example, Saracen is a general term for Arab, but it was often employed as an insult. And by the time of the Reformation, these xenophobic terms came to apply to Christian sects opposed to one's own theology. Anti-Catholic terms such as papist or Romish were these hostile terms used to characterize anything that smacked of the Pope. They functioned as the equivalency of calling somebody a fascist or a racist today. The words Pope Holy, for example, meant hypocritical. And from these terms, pamphleteers created new, similar words, Popery, papistical, popistant, and, my favorite, popling. The words actually took on a whole new meaning of conspiracy after the gunpowder plot and popish plot, 
both of which were attributed to Catholic leanings, so much so that Guy Fawkes Day was previously known as Pope Day since the Pope was burned in effigy each year, all the way to 1903. So too was the practice of indulgences and soliciting money ridiculed with its own words and phrases. For example, Poping, Peter's Pence, Rome's Penny, Rome Raker. In fact, and I thought this was really interesting, the reason the title Roman Catholic even came into being around 1605 is because the very word Roman had become, in Hugh's words, too insidious. But Catholics weren't the only ones exempt. The words devil, antichrist, and whore were applied to anyone who believed anything to be heretical. Sexualized language such as fornication, harlotry, sodomy, and carnality were all of a sudden applied to anything considered profane. For example, John Norris in the 17th century exclaimed, quote, "'Tis a kind of spiritual fornication to admit any creature into a partnership with him in our love." End quote. Another example is the very first use of the word sodomy was coined by John Whitecliffe, and it applied to spiritual, not physical, matters. Titles such as Quaker, Presbyterian, Methodist, even Protestant, were used as terms to abuse another and cut them off from society. They were not originally terms used to describe one's own denomination, just the denomination of those you don't agree with. Kind of like the words maybe today, libtards, or snowflakes, or maga hats. Of these terms, actually, Quaker is probably my favorite. George Fox, the Quaker's founder, claimed in 1650 that he got the name because he, quote, tremble at the name of the Lord. But in 1647, a letter from London gives a very different explanation. Quote, I hear of a sect of women, they are at Southwark, come from beyond the sea, called Quakers, and they swell, shiver, and shake, and when they come to themselves, for in all this fit Mahomet's Holy Ghost hath been conversing with them, they begin to preach what hath been delivered to them by the Spirit. End quote. Now, if you remember the term Mahomet before, the literal translation then means that these Quakers are those who have had indecent intercourse with a demon. The word converse in the sense they were using here, means to have sexual intercourse. And in fact, in case you think I'm totally making that up, the same term is applied to the other word for the Society of Friends, Shakers. In 1694, a translation of Rabelais states, quote, Those whom Venus is said to rule as wenchers, leechers, shakers. End quote. There's this underlying idea that they are having sex with succubi. Kinky. By the time of the Renaissance, swearing had become its own creative medium, something that could be simultaneously witty yet vulgar. But with the advent of fundamentalist Christianity, so too did a new wave of punishments for criminal swearers arise. Hughes writes, quote, At a time when a liberated, nominalist view of language was challenging the old taboos, a new wave of repression emanated from the fundamentalist sects like the Puritans and Quakers. Queen Elizabeth seems to have been no stranger to a good mouth-filling oath. Shakespeare and Ben Jonson amused themselves with conflicts of wit. 
But in another category of swearing, Guy Fawkes and Father Garnett could knowingly swear false in deepest consequence in that notorious case of high treason, the gunpowder plot. It is an ironic circumstance that, during a period considered to be marked by liberation, Chaucer's works would have been unacceptable for any public reading, since they would have infringed the restrictions concerning indecency and profanity on the Elizabethan stage. End quote. Part of the reason for this is that, through the lens of humanism, swearing evolved from a religious expression to a secular one. No longer was swearing confined to the tirades on other Christian denominations or heretics. Now it was free for all and indiscriminate swearing. But with this advent came secular censorship. Before the Renaissance, censorship applied to specifically, quote, players in pipers strolling through the kingdom, disseminating heresy and seditions, end quote. Sometimes you might get something like, say, if you were a duke or a duchess and you happened to be in an important meeting and it was very public in your swearing, but otherwise you typically wouldn't get caught for it. But in late medieval Europe, as kingdoms consolidated power through a centralized monarchy, any discussion that questioned the institution of the king was subject to censorship. In fact, portions of Shakespeare's Richard II were censored, and scenes involving the deposition not allowed to play during Elizabeth's reign, because it was considered to be against the monarchy. Two satirical plays, The Isle of Dogs and Eastward Ho, actually led to the actors and authors being sent to jail for swearing. Queen Elizabeth I of England herself was quite the vulgarity, which is interesting because it's during her reign that this censorship first starts to come into play. In fact, many claimed she swore like a man. Nathan Drake stated, quote, A shocking practice seems to have been rendered fashionable by the queen. For it is said that she never spared an oath in public speech or private conversation when she thought it added energy to either. End quote. Remember, oath meaning swearing. Montagu claimed God's wounds was a favorite oath of the queen. And John Aubrey claimed that once, quote, this Earl of Oxford, making of his low obsessence to Queen Elizabeth, in other words, bowing, happened to let out a fart at which he was so abashed and ashamed that he went to travel for seven years. On his return, the queen welcomed him home and said, My lord, I'd forgot the fart. End quote. I could honestly probably do an entire episode on just Queen Elizabeth's insults. One of her most famous ones was an allegation she made to Archbishop Parker's wife after a feast. Elizabeth did not agree with clergy marrying, which... Archbishop Parker was obviously married, so she remarked, quote, And you, Madame, I may not call you, and Mistress, I am ashamed to call you, so I know not what to call you, but yet I do thank you. End quote. And to sum it up, as Sir Robert Cecil stated about Elizabeth, quote, She was more than a man, and in truth sometimes less than a woman. End quote. But after her death and the ascension of James I in 1606, the Act to Restrain Abuses of Players was enacted. It stated, quote, If any person or persons does or shall in any stage play, interlude, shoe, the game, or pageant, jestingly or profanely speak, or use the holy name of God, or of Christ Jesus, or of the Holy Ghost, or of the Trinity, they shall forfeit for every such offense by him or them committed 10 pounds, end quote. 
10 pounds might not sound like a lot to us, but that's a hefty sum per profanity. For some plays, such as the Wakefield pageants in the Townley cycle, any troop would instantly bankrupt from putting on a single act, because there'd be so many swear words. So how does one get around an act designed to censor plays? Well, you do what we do today. You substitute and allude to get your point across. First, the use of the Christian god's name went out of fashion in plays, replaced with pagan deities. Second, minced oaths that avoided direct reference to profanity increased. So, like for example, a minced oath. Uh, the first one was circumvented easily by simply re uh, removing the word God from a swear, but leaving the rest intact. I kind of think of like how uh, some people remove the F from fuck as a kid, and they just say uck, or I guess the uck, and just say F. So words like God's blood, God's body, God's foot, which were all very famous medieval swears, became splud, spotty, sfoot. The oath, God's wounds, became zounds, which maybe you've heard before, a word so completely unlike the original that in the 1698 play Love in a Bottle, this exchange occurs. Quote, Pray, what are the most fashionable oaths in town? Zounds, I take it, is a very becoming one. Somebody else says, Zounds is only ust by the disbanded officers and bullies, but zons is the bow's pronunciation. Zons. And then another person, yes, sir, we swear as we dance, smooth and with a cadence. Zons, tis harmonious, and it pleases the ladies because tis soft. Zons, madame, is the only compliment of our great beau pass on a lady. End quote. And of course, if we're going to be talking about insults and swears and curses and plays, we would be remiss if we didn't mention William Shakespeare. And of course, if Queen Elizabeth could get a whole episode, we could probably make a whole podcast off of Shakespeare. He honestly was, probably still is, the masterclass of the use of profanity, especially since they strayed so close to the real words without actually being those words. Take Henry V for the example, when the French Catherine begins to learn the English language. Catherine says, Comment allez-vous la pied et la robe? In other words, what do you call the foot and the dress? Her maid says, De foot, madame, et le con. The foot, madame, and, if we translate it, the cunt. Catherine responds, The foot and cunt? Oh, Lord God, these are bad, corruptible, gross, and shameless words, not for ladies in waiting. In Henry IV, Shakespeare uses the phrase, A foutre for the world and worldlings base. Foutre being the French word for fuck. In fact, it makes the grammar lesson in The Merry Wives of Windsor that he wrote that much funnier, in which they talk about the focative case. One of the people comments, oh, that's a good root. Focative case, fuck. Even the title Much Ado About Nothing is itself a sexual pun. The nothing being able to be translated at the time as an o-thing, a phrase that used to mean cunt in Puritan England. So in other words, it's much ado about cunts. But by 1623, Puritanism had taken hold in England, at least for a spell, and a general decree against swearing was written into the books. Quote, For as much as all profane swearing and cursing is forbidden by the word of God, be it therefore enacted by the authority of then Parliament, that no person or persons should from thenceforth profanely swear or curse 
upon penalty of forfeiting one shilling to the use of the poor for every oath or curse. End quote. In other words, it no longer was just stage actors who had to worry about cursing, but the general public. And if one refused to pay up, they were sent to the stocks or whipped. And criminalizing only grew from there. Quote, As the Puritans gained power, so the war against profanity was conducted on all fronts. Not a man swears but pays his twelve pence, claimed Oliver Cromwell of his Ironsides. A quartermaster found guilty under military law of uttering impious expressions was condemned to have, quote, his tongue bored with a red-hot iron, his sword broken over his head, and be ignominiously dismissed the service. Predictably, throughout this period, treaties against swearing poured from the presses of the land, end quote. By 1642, all public stage plays were halted to curb profanity entirely. Swearing was swiftly becoming criminal. So if that's the case, how did we get to the swearing boom that we live in today? And what about racial and sexual epithets, which we haven't talked about at all? If we're going to be talking about the criminality of such words, it's going to take a darker turn. And we'll discuss that in the next episode of High Crimes in History. High Crimes in History is produced, written, and edited by Trevor and Katie Rhodes. Music by Nick Wright. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have recommendations for show topics or comments about the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or find us at our website at highcrimesinhistory.com. 